You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from Ad Force. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. This is the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm Matt Tebby, one of your co-horses, <laughs> one of the uh, uh. equine... And I'm Off one of to the, a great start already. Gentlemen, start your, okay. start your horses. <clears throat> Ready? Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. My name is Matt Tebby. I'm one of the co-hosts of this podcast, and I'm with my friend and collaborator, Ben Sternke. Hello. I'm here. You are there. And we both have, we both have, we're doing this on a video call so we can see each other. 70% mm -hmm. of communication is nonverbal. And I mm -hmm. just don't trust Sternke enough to talk to him without seeing his face. I want to make sure. Just want to make sure <laughs> I know we're, what's going on. Normally when we do the podcast, we are in the same room about one foot away from each other. Uncomfortably close. It is. Well, it's, it's just culturally we don't stand that close to men. Uh, unless right. yeah. unless we're in a... Um, Recording a podcast. Or a high school gym shower. So, right. But, but yeah. any, any context when I'm standing that close to a man, maybe in a queue somewhere. Uh, it's just uncomfortable and awkward, yeah. except for when we're talking yeah. and I'm like smelling your old spice, noticing mm -hmm. the places on your neck you missed when you shaved your beard. Mm -hmm. Have I ever Those told things. you that before? Uh, no, I, uh, you know. Next no. time I'll point it out. Yeah, but but today That'd you're to you're in Atlanta. I'm in Atlanta. I'm in Indianapolis. Indeed. And we both have maps behind us. Yeah, oddly, the the rooms we're, we're in, I'm just in a room here in the church. I'm actually in Ben Hardman's church, the church that Ben Hardman is a pastor at. Uh, we're getting ready to do this Enneagram workshop. Is it called, uh, uh, was it, is it a church, Ben Hardman Community Church? Is that what it's called? Yep, that's what it's called. No, it's called <laughs> Grace Marietta. We're in Marietta, Georgia. Great. So. Uh, and so maybe it's fitting we have uh, maps uh, of the world behind us because uh, we're talking about we, we could be considered worldly in our interpretation of the scriptures, Ben. Oh, I see what you did there. You see what I'm, you see what I'm doing here? Uh -huh. So last, uh -huh. last podcast, we, we detailed or described, narrated our journey into embracing women alongside men in ministry. And in doing that, we highlighted, I think mostly, we got into this fairly arcane discussion on hermeneutics for a bit. We did. But most of the conversation dealt with our relationships and our experiences and yes. sort of a more subjective thing. And uh, we've heard some feedback from that podcast already. Thank you for reaching out via social media and email, et cetera, that mm -hmm. people would like to hear more about <clears throat> how the how we wrestled through the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So um, we thought we'd just take a stab at doing a quick flyover of that today to sort of yeah. help people understand that this wasn't something we we just, like we didn't close our eyes and search our hearts yeah. and and go with our feelings. 
Right. And just say, well, if scripture doesn't line up with the way that things seem like they should be to me, then we can't trust that scripture anymore. That is a hermeneutical move that some people make, um, but it's not one that we think uh, we ought to make. You know, So in that sense, we're still very sort of evangelical in the sense that we're taking scripture seriously as the word of God. And so we thought it would be good uh, to kind of talk a little bit about how we have come to these conclusions, yeah, through through the scriptures. Yep. And where um, we're, yeah, where we're headed with all this is we're going to hear from some men and women who work alongside each other in ministry, and they're going to mm. tell us what they're learning and how they're uh, growing and together, and the obstacles that are involved in being men and women in ministry together. And then we'll probably at the end of that summarize sort of what Ben and I, what we're learning and how we kind of are growing and seeing this all together. So this will, so that's where we're headed. But I think it's good to sort of yeah. get this stuff out of the way. So how how do you want to do this, Ben? Yeah. Well, I, what's I your thought, idea? <laughs> um, I. So I I I think we should we should go through some of the scriptures that are the what about scriptures, right? So oftentimes there are scriptures that seem uh, to be saying something very clearly um, that oftentimes get said. Well, what about this scripture? What about this scripture? And um, we can talk very specifically about those things. Um, and I'll, I'll take the role of the, the what about uh, person. And I'll try to do this fairly. I'll try to do this, um, you know what I mean? Like I, I, in talking through this, I never want to give anybody the impression that we think uh, that if you don't see things the way that we see them, that you're a heretic or you're being unfaithful to Jesus or anything like that. I know there are, tr- there are tremendously thoughtful people who come to different conclusions, uh, and and I and I totally respect that. We totally respect that there are different ways of looking at these things. Are you saying we shouldn't uh, divide over this matter? We should not divide over this matter. You are We're such a lousy Protestant. Christians, right? <laughs> but none of this stuff is in the Apostles' Creed, uh, and so or in the Nicene Creed, right? And so, Chalcedon. Um, yeah. Is so anyway, Chalcedon? so and I and I totally get that, right? And so. Um, that these are contested matters. They, they're matters for discussion. And I, uh, I think it's extremely valuable and we need to have these kinds of discussions, thoughtful discussions, uh, where we do talk about like, well, what about this? What about this text? What about this one? Um, and so anyway, let, w- w- how about we do that? Great. That sounds about, great. Let's give it a shot. I, so, so let's say I'm somebody who just listened to our last podcast and I think, okay, it's compelling. Uh, I get what you're saying, um, but what about 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse uh, 3, where this is what the text says. But I want you to realize, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is is God. Mm. So Paul says this to, to, to the Corinthians, and then he goes on to say, um, so that this is why um, uh, women need to pray or prophesy with their head covered, yes. basically. But, but he's, he's, he's saying, okay, here's, here's, here's the reason you need to do this. And the reason is this kind of truth that he pu- pulls out there, the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So how do how do we interpret uh, this text um, in in the way that you're you're talking about? Uh, well, there's a lot of issues with this text. So uh, so just full dis- disclosure, listeners, uh, I don't have we haven't. This is going to be sort of off the top of our heads. We just decided to do this like 15 minutes ago. Uh, so uh, in the show notes, we'll put some resources that have yeah. influenced us and helped us understand these things theologically, biblically, and we'll also put any asterisks about things we say that uh, may have come out wrong. So we, I may <laughs> right. misspeak a lot here because this isn't coming from uh, my notes. Uh, there's yeah. no notes actually at all. Yeah, we we haven't created like uh, white papers uh, that are footnoted for right. this stuff. Right. This is off the top of our heads. So yeah. So go ahead. Right. So. So one of the things that we need to remember here is that Paul's dealing with a contextual issue in the Church of Corinth. So um, Scott McKnight, who's uh, a friend of ours, and uh, he's a canon theologian of our diocese in the Anglican Church, he has this phrase that, um, that before 
truth can be timeless, it must be timely. Meaning Paul's writing timely letters to churches dealing with timely issues, and he's giving them pastoral counsel to deal with those issues. And they're often letters written in response to letters he's received that describe the issue, or reports he's received from traveling missionaries that describe the issue. And Paul doesn't give us all that information because his readers already know it. So we're listening, it's like we're sitting in a coffee shop listening to one side of a conversation uh, from somebody like two seats away, right? And and because too the language and the culture is distant, so we're we're getting we're catching about seventy percent of the conversation. So uh, a few things about this text that are important. One is I'm not sure it's head coverings. I'm sure um, there's good evidence to suggest that what Paul's describing is women with their hair down or their hair up. So women having their hair up, covering their head, mm. uh, was a symbol of propriety and modesty and um, chastity. And a woman who had their hair down was a symbol of uh, uh, licentiousness. You know, like a symbol of I'm, I'm available and ready to go. So mm. prostitutes wore their hair down. Mm-hmm. Uh, slave and free, uh, slave and unmarried women sometimes would wear their hair down in certain situations. Uh, so whether or not it's head covering or having your hair up uh, is, is one, of the, one of the conversations about this text. Uh, two, uh, the thing you just read about um, the, the head thing, right? Mm-hmm. So the word there is kephale. That's the Greek word. I know that because I have an MDiv. And, the, <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of conversation about what that word means. I think right. I, think I, I read into kephale, Paul's use of kephale. I used to read into that hierarchy. Yes, and a leader. Th- leader and authority and hierarchy. Um, but when I, uh, and so, but kephale is mostly used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in other Greek, uh, contemporaneous with Paul, it's mostly used to describe source or origin. So, um, so there is a primacy to a head, but it's it's about things flowing out of it and from it, and it it has a lot to do with the way that ancients saw the head. So the head was the place from which the feeding of the body flowed. Um, I was reading this morning, like Aristotle. Just parenthetically, I was reading this this morning. Uh, Aristotle used to think, uh, and other people used to think that actually, like semen came from your, like a guy, like semen for a man came from their head and flowed mm. out of their body. So there's a mm. sense that it was the origin and source of life. So that's yeah. that's the first thing. Second thing is there. There's another cog, uh, connotation of head about the man and a patriarchal ancient Near Eastern society being the origin and source of any woman who's in his household, of their vitality, of their life, of their status, of their honor. So there's a primacy that the man has in the culture of being the origin and source of their name, their status, their place, their honor, etc. I've come to realize that reading hierarchy into headship undoes a lot of the theology that Jesus teaches us about what it means to have authority, also undoes a lot of the practice and teaching that Paul teaches about uh, authority, right? Um, mm. And so, so for me, uh, I mean, we can get into what actually is going on here. I think, I think what's actually going on in this text in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul is, is trying to uh, put all women on the same level of honorable. So he's saying, uh, worship with your heads covered, a, because Corinth had some pretty lax... I mean, Corinth was sort of the prostitution capital of, the, of Rome, uh, the Roman Empire. This is, this is, again, we might asterisk this. There might be another <laughs> prostitution capital. Uh, if you know that, you can uh, hit us up on uh, email at ben at gravityleadership.com. Uh, but uh, so, so there was a sense in which... And there already... You, you can see in the Corinthian correspondence, there's all this teaching about sex, right? So Paul's talking mm-hmm. about you can't have sex with your dad's wife... Uh, you know, a woman right. doesn't have authority over her body, neither does a man have authority over his. By the way, that's the only time in Scripture where Paul talks about having authority over, and he says both of them have authority over each other's bodies. That's mm. really mm-hmm. important. That's 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to look that up. And so 1 Corinthians 11, I, I think what's happening here is, and I get, I'm getting this from uh, Cynthia uh, Long-Westfall in her book, Paul and Gender. It's an amazing book. 
Uh, we'll link it in the show notes. And by we, I mean Ben. You'll probably take care of that. Yeah, I'll have to okay. until we find somebody else to <laughs> listen to these podcasts and find links. Uh, she talks about how this is uh, this is Paul uh, bringing honor to dishonorable women and putting all women in the same space of honoring. And mm. so, and so, there's actually Paul is fighting for marginalized people because um, mm-hmm. we have to remember. I'm almost done here. We have to remember that in Paul's day, if you were a slave woman or a single woman. Uh, or a prostitute. Uh, not only, not only did you not have honor, but your body didn't belong to you. You you could mm. literally like if you were a slave or a prostitute or even a free one. Like you, you, you. <laughs> I mean, it's hard for us to think about this, but like you didn't have say over when a man had sex with you or not. You were just basically. Um, you know, a married woman was sort of property, but an unmarried woman was less than property. Right. So she could, so she didn't have agency or authority over her body, mm-hmm. even. Right. So what Paul's doing here is actually lifting those women up into a more honorable place in worship for the sake of the body, um, which is a pretty powerfully culturally. I mean, that's a that's a cultural move. Paul's pushing against, we see this over and over, Paul's pushing against the dehumanizing, misogynistic, uh, cultural patriarchy of his day and protecting and honoring and valuing people who are most abused by it. Hmm. Did I over-answer that question? I I probably did. No, I think it's uh, it's helpful. Uh, It's really helpful. And I I find myself, you know, I I don't think I can be the the role of the, the interlocutor uh, fully, because I always think of uh, more things that I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pile on. Um, but anyway, it's probably not necessary, but I um, will link this up in the show notes. Let's, let me just say this, that Sarah Sumner's book, uh, Men and Women in the Church, uh, was really helpful for me in terms of understanding head and kind of how, how it's used in these texts. Yeah. Um, and so two things, like if, if headship has to do with authority over and hierarchy, um, that becomes very problematic if God is the head of Christ, because there ends up being some uh, some problems in our uh, doctrine of the Trinity. That's all I'll say. Um, <laughs> well, some, some people but, don't care about that. Like, there's I, I some people that, who argue for authority and hierarchy who actually are importing that into the Trinity. Yes. Right? Yes. Which is actual heresy. You're right. It <laughs> like, is. Uh, right. Uh, having a woman preach at your church isn't heresy. But right. importing importing that distinction and hierarchy into the Trinity in a way that separates and divides is yes. like technically. Technically, it is the, right. It's the terminus a, technicus for that is heresy. <laughs> yeah. So that that's I mean that's something to point out is it 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 be, it problematizes uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, and also um, one of the things about headship that Sarah Sumner points out in her book is that the common, if you look at this text uh, and other texts where it talks about head, um, which we'll, we'll get to here in a second, Ephesians 5, oh. if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. Um, but one of, the, one of the common factors that she points out is that the head in each of these relationships, it's three relationships. It's uh, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, or husband is the head of the wife. That's probably a better That's translation, another. by the way. Right. Yeah, one of those two. Um, husband's head of the wife, or God is the head of Christ. In each of those relationships, the head is not necessarily the leader. In the like, is God the leader of Christ? That's. I mean, Christ not, is God, Ben. Right. Exactly. Right? right. So again, we're problematizing the doctrine of the Trinity, but in each of those relationships, the head is the person who is least physically vulnerable. Yeah. So Christ is ascended and can no longer, he's no longer subject to pain, you know, crucifixion, everything that happened to him in the body. Um, he's, he's ascended. And so he's the head of, of man who is yeah. physically vulnerable. His church can be persecuted. Right. Um, and then God is the head of Christ. So Christ has this human body. Um, God, the father does not. And so he's less physically vulnerable um, and then the same way with uh, man and woman, like men are less physically vulnerable than women in general. And, um, and so there's, there's something there too that um, where there's a, there's a, there is a specific calling, but it's to the one who is more 
uh, who is less physically vulnerable to sacrifice themselves on behalf of the one who is more physically vulnerable. Yes. That's the call. Which, that's a good transition to Ephesians, because yes, when, when we, exactly. we look at the word head and how it's describing Christ in Ephesians, and then it's applied to the man as well in Ephesians 5, the, the action, the, the, what the head is doing is always giving, nourishing, mm-hmm. sacrificing, sub- yes. like the word I would use is submitting itself or himself unto the growth and empowerment of the other. Yes. I, I took this uh, class in seminary. I know I mentioned seminary a lot. Uh, I, maybe I should stop that. It's probably annoying. It's annoying me. Uh, so uh, I took this class in seminary from this world-renowned scholar, visiting scholar, on the book of Ephesians. And I remember writing a paper on the, uh, it was, it was, uh, the paper was on the meaning of head in Ephesians. And so uh, he was one of these people who, who was really convinced that head meant uh, like authority and leader. And there was an inherent hierarchy when you're using the word head. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. look at look at how Paul uses the word and what the head is doing. That is absent. It's like you have to you have to import right. it or read it into this. It's not yeah. even if even if you want to argue that's the meaning, uh, it's not what the head is doing. And Paul doesn't make use of that kind of meaning at all in Ephesians. So it's almost so anyway, I, I wrote a paper and I turned in a rough draft, and he was like, You can't say that the head means um source or origin uh, because it means this and he was you know uh, this is really esoteric and will take too long he's pointing to all these uses in the Septuagint and other places and I said but but what Paul's doing with that word in Ephesians is not that meaning and he said well then you need to differentiate between what the word means and what the word's doing and when he said that a light turned on to me because I think I think he had a different understanding of how language works than I do <laughs> right. That language has a pristine, decontextualized, right. abstract meaning to it that is yeah. different from how it's used. Right. Which isn't the way we live. This is what I mean, like one of those hermeneutical things that so like <clears throat> look, Ben, if you if you're like, hey, I'm gonna leave Deb and I'm gonna join the circus. And I was like, Oh, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, the word okay means good, I'm fine with it, great. And sure means certainly, right? Right. Now, if, if you were to hold me to the literal, abstract, decontextualized meaning of my words and our conversations, we would, we would never communicate with each other. Right. Because that's not how we use language. Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm saying, okay, sure, like, uh, you're, you must be joking, or you gotta be kidding me, or... Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm yeah. doing something so different con- with those yeah. words. You're, so language is always contextual. And uh, rather than it being like, I can't do something with my language that isn't, that isn't contextual. That's pure or pristine. No. Words don't fall out of heaven from God, he said. Here's what this word means. No. They like, always, we, we use yeah. them with each other to try to communicate things. And the fact that, you know, we can miscommunicate you know, every day, you know, <laughs> with, with people that we're talking with every day, I think shows that, right? Yeah. It's not like there's one meaning for this word. It's like, no, there's context and we have to discern kind of what's going on there. Yeah. One of my best profs in seminary, I brought it up again, a guy named Kevin Van Hooser. <laughs> he, he used this example of, of, uh, of if, if, you, if I asked you, hey, would you like a cup of coffee? And then, I, and then you said, that would keep me awake. Um, his thing was, does that mean they want a cup of coffee or not? And and right. uh, and it was funny. Like there was five minutes of discussion in the class before somebody <laughs> was like, "We need more context to understand this." Right. What time of day is it? What are we doing together? Yes. Right. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. What's happening? You right. Know, but it was like, are we staying up late to try to finish a project? Yeah. Or are we winding down our evening and it's time to go to bed? Or are we doing a podcast on a Friday morning and we got to we got to figure out how to get our synapses firing? You know, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So anyway, that maybe is too long of an excursus into that, but I think it's super important because I want I want to treat the language of Scripture in in a way that makes sense of the rest of my life. I don't want to invent rules yeah. and laws about how I interpret Scripture 
that I wouldn't use for the rest of my life. Yeah. That doesn't make sense about how humans work and how language works, right? Yeah. And it's also, uh, it treats uh, the scripture as something that's less than incarnational. Dang, son. Right? That God, God, God didn't actually, he doesn't communicate with us in our own flesh, right? In our own language. But that he, there's some sort of angelic or pristine divine thing that scripture's doing that normal communication doesn't do. You got to learn you got to learn new rules to read this yeah. text that you wouldn't use yeah. for any other text you read. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I I hope this doesn't feel too esoteric to people because well, these uh, these are the kinds of things that naturally come up when we talk about how we're interpreting these texts, right? Yeah. Like like this is a rabbit hole. It really is. Yeah, but it's a good one. I mean, it's a good one. It's a necessary one. I may listen to That's this podcast, Ben, and I may be the only one who enjoys it. But it'll be worth, it'll be worth it. <laughs> it'll be worth it. So okay, so, so let's Ephesians let's talk 5. about let's talk about Ephesians five. Of course, we're talking about um, five twenty two specifically, and and following wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. There it is again. Christ is the head, husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church, of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. To their own husbands in everything. And then, of course, there's a longer uh, passage about husbands then, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church to make her holy. And this is a lot of what you're talking about in that paper you wrote, where what the husband as the head does, uh, there's nothing about leadership here. There's a lot about, you know, loving, sacrificing, um, that kind of thing. But again, I'm not, I'm not being a very good uh, devil's advocate here. So yes, put on your <laughs> but devil what about hat. this passage? So what about this, like this verse specifically wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Yeah. Husbands are not asked to submit to their wives. Wives are asked to submit to their husbands. What do we do with that? Maybe, maybe, or maybe not. So verse 21 says, uh, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ or submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The same new Testament visiting new Testament scholar. Uh, when he was teaching through this, he here was his conceptualization of this. And I, I take this to be like the best argumentation for what would be described as a complementarian perspective. So that's why I'm quoting him. I'm not trying to uh, turn, I'm not trying to caricature this. I'm trying to give the best, what I've heard is the, the, the best gloss on this. He could not conceptualize how two people could submit to each other at the same time. Hmm. He, he could, he, he was like, of course this doesn't mean both people submit at the same time. That's impossible. You can't do that. He said, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He said, is the, is the beginning of, here's how that works. Wives to husbands, slaves to masters, children's, children to parents. So for him, it was, there was a unidirectional submission because it's, incomprehensible how two people could submit to each other at the same time. Now, Ben, you and I co-pastor, yep. and one of the practices that we use is what we call mutual submission. I've been leading as a pastor in mutual submission alongside other pastors for over 10 years, so I don't have the same issue of imagination that this scholar had. And even as like a 26-year-old person in this uh, classroom, when he said that, I, I was thinking of all kinds of ways in which I submit, like I'm in relationships with people that we're more both submitting to each other. Um, again, I think there's a, there's, an, there's a frame, there's a lens of what power and authority look like. That's, it's strictly hierarchical. So there's, there's the power and authority is there's somebody on top and the people underneath them are submitting. And A, I don't think that's a good frame to understand power and authority in the New Testament. I think it's a I think it's a imported frame from mm -hmm. from culture and I think it doesn't take seriously the way that Jesus subverts that over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Right? So you've heard you've heard it said that uh, um, uh, you've heard it said this about uh, Gentile leaders lorded over them, but not so among you, right? Whoever's going right. to be first must be last and like a servant. Yeah. Uh, he says, uh, don't, don't let anybody call you a uh, master or father. You have one master and one father, right? So there's all this subverting of the hierarchy and then like story after story, 
he subverts hierarchies. All these parables that he tells where the younger son is blessed and the older son isn't. Like there's all of this unraveling of the hierarchical system, not only patron-client, but patriarchy in the ancient Near East. And I don't think that has informed well enough our understanding of submission and authority in the New Testament. Yeah. And I I think a helpful additional um, qualifier to hierarchy, because I I think there can be, like hierarchy is a very fairly generic term in general, just it just means, you know, one thing supersedes another. Um, But I think the word control is an important one here that, that goes unnamed oftentimes, where our conception of what power and authority mean are who is in charge, which means who calls the shots, Yes, which means who gets to say what happens for everybody. Yes. That's our conception of, of what it means. And so if I'm at the top of the hierarchy, it means I get to say what you do. And submitting to you means Listen I, I to do me. what you say, yeah. no matter how I feel about it, no matter what I want, I do what you say. And then if I'm on the top of the hierarchy, my my power is in is in my ability to control what you do. So power equals my will be done. Yeah. I, I just get what I want yeah. because I'm on the top of the hierarchy. And I think that is a sub-biblical understanding of power and authority. Yeah. Jesus. And it's definitely sub-Christian. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> more importantly, sub-Christian. Uh, Jesus doesn't model that, and we don't see the apostles carry their authority and power like that. Right. Um, so right. getting back to this text, I think it's, again, we're overhearing a conversation that we mm-hmm. don't have all the information for. So this is usually called the household codes. There's you know household codes in First Peter and uh, people yeah, sometimes Colossians. Pe- Colossians. People sometimes say Matthew 18 is like the household code in Matthew's gospel. But this is a <laughs> established genre. How you like that French word? Established genre of ancient Near Eastern literature that that people outside of Christianity there were household codes in the pagan. Uh, Greek culture, Greek and Roman culture. So they're adopting a known, established form of how to describe how people and households relate. And and Paul's recruiting that to not not lay down this timeless principle. Again, like this this may be more important to my theology than I'm willing to admit. Paul is doing something in a culture to an established norm Mm-hmm. He's using a norm, but he's repurposing it. He's 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 drawing that norm into the kingdom of God, and so he doesn't want to abolish the Roman household. He's really keen in some places in the New Testament to say we can't we can't um, completely revolutionize the Roman household because it would lead to societal chaos, and then it would be bad for the witness of the church. So Paul is using a form, an ancient form, and he's. He's injecting the kingdom of God into it. Another way to say it is, he's thinking about what would redemption of the Roman family, the Greek and Roman family, look like under the lordship of Jesus. And so in these household codes, he's not prescribing an for-all-time way it always happens. He's describing in this culture what happens when Jesus as the head gets it gets loose in this in this culture. Yeah. Right? Which doesn't yeah. make this text less true. It just makes it more timely and thus we have more work to do to appropriate yeah. it. Which is and and the thing that comes to mind is well why does why does Paul work that way? Well, because Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a seed that you plant in the ground. Right? It's not you know, and so I think that I think that's an important thing about like how does God work in the world? It doesn't like like there's not like a, a pristine, ideal situation that falls out of heaven and we all like get on board with it. The kingdom of God is like a seed that gets planted in the ground, and so it gets planted in the soil of the ancient Near East culture, and so Jesus is Lord, and and you know they begin to start asking questions and and slaves and masters, you know, there's like. Things are starting to happen in these relationships, male and female. You know what I mean? These new things start to happen, but they are happening within a culture. This isn't like this isn't like a revolution. uh, I don't know. Maybe it's the revolution. Yeah, Yeah. but it's it's more like this this uh, 
I don't know what the right word for it is, but like a like, like a like a reformation or something that's kind of bubbling up from within. Yeah, he's not an anarchist. Than, Paul's not an anarchist. He's right. he he keeps his Roman citizenship. He operates within it. And he gets killed by the Roman uh, government, so he doesn't always submit to the authorities. Uh, BT dubs. I mean, the man who writes <laughs> Romans thirteen right. gets killed by the Romans thirteen authorities. So like, there's a right. he he. But he's not an anarchist. So he's not wanting to overthrow all the societal norms. He's wanting to work within them for their redemption under the lordship of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Yes. Yeah. So these household codes in Ephesians operate in this way. That's 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 a way of reading them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They operate in this way that there is a sense in which Paul is saying some things that everybody expects him to say, but there's there's interesting subversion going on, specifically in like <clears throat> husbands love your wives. And then what he goes on to describe a husband's job looks very much like what we say the wife's job is in submission. Well, do you know what I mean? Unless you import in the word submit, like you get to make decisions and I listen to you. <clears throat> right. Right. But if, right. you, if you don't have an imagination for mutually submitting one to another, right. like then the giving and receiving mutuality you see in Ephesians 5, I don't think makes, I, yeah. I, I think I've heard people say, I don't have an imagination for that. I don't know what that yeah. looks like. Yes. But yeah, you're right, Ben. I think you're right. I think yeah. two, Paul's Paul's rewriting these household codes. So the household codes in the Greek and, uh, Greek and Roman culture are about how to keep the order steady and it's clarifying it's clarifying for the people with no power their responsibilities to people with power. Hmm. In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks to wives, speaks to slaves, speaks to children, but there's a complete revolution in he's, he's talking to the people with power about how to lay it down, how to hmm. empty themselves of, of what I would call worldly power so that they can, in, they can inhabit this this cruciform canonic love that he commands the husbands to have for the wife that looks like just a laying down of power. So, so this would have revel like a man in Ephesus who gets this, who gets, who hears this text, a man who <clears throat> probably didn't meet his wife before the wedding night, a woman who's married to a man that she did not select her parents did. So we think marriage is hard when we get to choose our mate. <laughs> like everybody in Ephesus was not, they didn't get it. They didn't even get a speed date. They were just told, usually the woman was just told by their parents, you're marrying this man. Sometimes that man would be able to choose his wife, but more often that man's parents would arrange a marriage based upon economic, social connections and benefaction, right? Right. So you got people who are, in, who are, who are married who like don't even, wouldn't prefer or like in our, in our 21st century way. They don't yeah. desire each other. Yeah. Um, they have more, more of what we would think of as a co-working relationship. It's like, well, I got to work with this guy. Yeah, they're coha <laughs> right. they're cohabitators, and and Paul's yeah, yeah. and Paul's describing in this cohabitation that you didn't choose, which you know we we live under the tyranny of individual choice. They they didn't, so there there probably was some more freedom in that for desire to be mm -hmm. formed and shaped. Like they probably had a greater imagination that desire doesn't drag and lead me around. I don't have to follow it everywhere right. as a consumer. Um, but but there was a sense in which like Paul's describing how do you how do you this is what Christian marriage is, and it's so much different, so much mm. different than there's a prescribed role for a man and a prescribed role for a woman. Yep. Um, that's I don't I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. I don't I don't see I don't think Scripture functions prescribing roles. I think Scripture functions in handling cultural cultural given norms and dealing with people in redemptive ways within those cultural scripts and norms. Okay. All right, let's talk about one more passage. Yeah. I don't know how many minutes we are into this podcast, but let's talk about one more passage. Uh, and this one, uh, it can be considered kind of the doozy because it, it seems to be really, really clear that in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 11 and, well, through 11 through uh, 14 or 15 here, um, that Paul is, in, you know, instructing Timothy uh, on various matters. Again, a timely you know, a timely word that he's giving to Timothy as in his leadership of, I think, the church in Ephesus. Uh, and he says this, a woman or a wife should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, 
And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So what do we do with that Yeah, strange passage? Uh, we don't let women get baptized until they have babies. <laughs> right? Women or actually, they don't need to be baptized because they just, they have babies. So childbirth so. <laughs> is the means through which they're saved. So yeah. let's get all these... No, yeah, yeah, what's going on here, right? Yes, yes, what um, is going on? Jeez. I mean, how to do this in five minutes. I, so um, there's some general letters written to churches in general areas. So there's the general epistles of like Hebrews and James, right? The book of Ephesians, uh, even though it goes to, uh, or the book of Colossians, some of these books, even though they're written for community, we hear a lot about, uh, this, there's like lots of churches that letters sent to. This mm-hmm. is correspondence, if uh, we believe Pauline authorship. This is correspondence from Paul to Timothy, who's dealing uh, with the church uh, in Ephesus, right? And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of specific instructions and specific issues that Paul's dealing with in First and Second Timothy. And one of the things we learn is that there are false teachers who are uh, running around to women who don't have uh, husbands and teaching them false things about God, right? And then these women, uh, he calls them busybodies at one point, uh, which I don't think is a slam. I think he's just describing their activity. Uh, they they are then teaching uh, other people this false teaching. So there's over and over again, there are indications that Paul's dealing with a bunch of women who have wrong doctrine that are teaching that wrong doctrine to the church. Uh, there's also, uh, Ephesus is the center of Artemis worship. You remember in the book of Acts when Paul comes to Ephesus and he proclaims Jesus? Like the, the people who make idols for Artemis, they're ticked off like because the entire economy for the city is based upon the cult, uh, the, the temple to Artemis, right? And so they, there's a riot, right, in the book of Acts, uh, that they got to kick Paul out because he's going to ruin their economy. So Artemis was a huge, uh, big deal in Ephesus. Um, Paul, can you guess? Paul. Ben, can you guess? <laughs> Paul, if you're listening. Paul, uh, Paul if you're listening. Uh, can you guess? Write an email. What, what Artemis was the goddess of? Uh, based, upon, well, based upon the point, Paul makes in this text, based upon the things he talks about in this text, kind of out of the blue. Right. Yeah. Right? There's no other indication we're talking about childbirth. Mm-hmm. Right? But Artemis yeah. was the goddess of childbirth. Fertility. Fertility. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, like, you see this in our world. When, when a, a woman gets pregnant or a couple gets pregnant— there are they buy books and there's all kinds of nesting happening and you get the room ready and you have baby showers and there's you know I remember my wife when she was pregnant she had this day by day book of like what's happening in your body even mm-hmm. in 21st century technologically advanced uh, Western culture where death and childbirth is very low right for our culture there's there's anxiety and energy and excitement and worry and fear around giving birth well 2,000 years ago. You know, with no antiseptic, no Tylenol, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, no masks or gloves. Like, people died in childbirth all the time. There was tons of, and it was, you know, you had to have babies to, to not only have workers in your family business, but to extend your line. So there was all this, all this pressure and fear. So there, there was a goddess that you would worship, that you would, you know, make sacrifices to or uh, call upon to help you survive childbirth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Artemis cult was run by women. So you had a lot of women who were in religious authority in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus. It was a matriarchal, sort of feminine, uh, women-centered worship. And and then you have this gospel come in that that does undercut the origin stories for Artemis and for women and men. I, we can't go into that right now, but there's a big there's there's a uh, big disagreement between Christ, the Christian origin story and Artemis's origin story. 
and 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 has uh, women who are used to being in religious authority. Uh, they need to learn how to live in community, where they're not wielding what I would call right-handed power or worldly power over men. Right. So one of the things Artemis Colt taught was um, it's more godly to be single and childless. So there was like this idealization of not being married and not mm. having babies, right? This is what I mean by this is what I mean by it has to be a timely command. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians, the book we just left, told women, don't get married. Remain as I am. But if you have to, I guess you can get married. Timely instruction for a timely contextual problem. Mm-hmm. Here in 1 Timothy, he's saying, get married, have kids. Yep. Have babies. Don't stay single. Don't like like this is this is part of your created purpose, right? Part of the yeah. created purpose. So yeah. that's that's a big that's a big piece of context that makes sense of what I would say is a command that Paul himself doesn't hold to the rest of the New Testament witness. Mm. Which I don't have a problem with. Like Paul, Paul gets these instructions from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Don't eat meat and do, do these things, right? Uh, don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. Uh, that, that he's supposed to, like the Gentiles are supposed to follow, but then when he gets into Gentile situations, he, he will eat meat, sacrifice to idols. And right. you know he'll fight against circumcising uh, Gentiles because yeah. they don't have to be circumcised, but then he circumcises Timothy. So we see him dealing contextually, missionally with what's wise and loving and fitting and prudent. Yes. Right, he's not applying universal abstract principles onto his mission, but rather he's discerning where there's freedom to discern how to live faithfully and wisely. And I would say this text falls into that same category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because part of part of you know, if I'm trying to play the the inter, know how to pronounce that interlocutor. word, interlocutor, interlocutor. That's good. Uh, That's if I'm it. trying to play, I would say like, how are we supposed to know any of this stuff? How are we supposed to know all this context when, you know, like if I'm, if I'm just, you know, reading my Bible, I become a Christian and I'm like, I wonder what the Bible says about this. I'm reading my Bible and I'm, I'm coming along and I, I hit this passage. All it says is, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. Yeah. Well, that means we could have another podcast on um, why you need the church to interpret scripture. Mm. That that in my yes. individual study Bible and me isn't sufficient for a yeah. faithful life. That's yeah. a different podcast. But the other part of this is the the word for authority here is a get ready. Here comes a big fancy seminary word. It's a hapax legomena. I might be mispronouncing that because I was not a good seminary student. Uh, which means this is the only time this word occurs in Scripture. Paul uses uh, another word for authority over and over and over in the New Testament. But mm-hmm. this word for authority is different than every other time he uses a word for authority. Hmm. And, and a lot of the... Um, so, you, so you go outside of the New Testament then to figure out what it means. And it's used by the church fathers and it's used by other Greek people. But this word has the sense of dominate, coerce, uh, even in some places murder. So it's this, ag- it's this aggressive domineering uh, top-down authority. A lording it over, if you A will. lording it over. I, I mean, I think that's a better way to say it. I'm, I'm not permitting women to lord it over. Which, by the way, often this text is used by people who would talk about, like, women, this is why women can't preach. They would presume and read into this text that the reason why women can't lord it over men is because God's designed it for men to lord it over women. Right. And And that's just not true. It's not true. Like, nowhere yeah. does Paul use this word or even describe, like, men, you you need to domineer women. You need to yeah. lord it over women. Or yeah. even, men, you have authority over women. The only place, I said this earlier, the only place where Paul says men have authority over women, he says women also have authority over men. And he's talking about their bodies and the act of marital mm-hmm. uh, relations. Yes. So, the, so the word itself should tip us off that that Paul's describing something that's a little more distant and maybe a little more specific than yeah. what we would just normally think of when we think of authority. Yeah. 
I think, I think part of what we're wrestling with here is our inherited assumptions about what the Bible is, too. Like, and, and our inherited assumptions about, like, I think we want to look at the Bible as a rule book, as a book of principles, as something that I sort of take from, I take a principle I from it. I extract this truth from my the, life. Yep, I extract yeah. this truth and apply it to my life. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's an opportunity in what, in what we're talking about here. There's an opportunity to recognize, okay, when, when Paul says one thing here and then he does another thing over here or he says another thing over here, like that's an opportunity for us to say, oh, this isn't a rule book. This yeah. isn't you know, a, a book of principles that I apply to my life. This is an account of mission in the kingdom of God being worked out on the ground yeah. that does function as the word of God to us. It functions as a witness to Jesus Christ in, in our midst. So it's, it's authoritative, but the question of how it's authoritative yeah. is one that we don't we haven't examined and we need to examine. Yeah. And, and how is scripture authoritative? Right. What's yeah. So Paul's Paul's command to Timothy here and to the church is authoritative for us, right? This is the word of God. Right. Uh, but we can't just drag and drop these principles or these propositional statements without context and without yeah. dealing with the actual apostles' practice in other places. So right. th- this was this was pro- this was huge for me. I remember when I I read this and heard about this and thought about it. Like, I have to hold these two things together. So Paul writes the book of Romans. Uh, Did you know that, Ben? Yeah, I'm (laughs) familiar. Paul writes the book of Romans. This is a church he's never visited, uh, but the the church is central to his strategy. It's like, it becomes the the seat of the the primary bishop, right? And Mm -hmm. it's a church full of Jews and Gentiles. And he writes this letter to this church as having trouble getting along. It's clear, right? And it's rec- usually recognized as one of the most theologically robust of all of Paul's letters. Like he spends, you know, twelve chap, eleven chapters unpacking, uh, really how how are Jews and Gentiles included in the people of God? Uh, mm-hmm. Ergo, this is how you guys should should get along. Chapters twelve through uh, sixteen. He sends this letter to a group he's never visited with a courier. Now. Couriers of letters would not only take the letter, but in the ancient world, in Greco-Roman world, they would read the letter, and then they were the authorized agent to answer questions about the letter and teach the letter as, as, as was fitting. So um, Paul, this is why the people who traveled with Paul were so important with him, and why mm. uh, sometimes he would even mention them by name in the letter. Paul mentions the courier of Romans, and it's a woman. Mm. It's Phoebe. Yeah. So Paul Paul chooses a woman to go to a church he hasn't met to be the authorized teacher and interpreter of one of the most theologically dense and important letters in the New Testament. Yeah. Like it's clear, it's clear to me that Paul wasn't operating in women keep silent and don't have any authority in the church. It's so clear to me that's not what he meant by what he practiced elsewhere. Yeah. And so there is a hermeneutical move where you take the proposition, 1 first, first, uh, Timothy chapter 2, and you use that as like everything has to bow to the proposition. Mm-hmm. I think that violates context, and it disrupts, I think, it, I think it's misreading a scripture. I'd rather take this take this prohibition that Paul has in 1 Timothy 2 and hold alongside what he actually practiced, how he actually lived, and say, Paul's not schizophrenic, and I'm not going to pick and choose which scripture to believe. How do these function together? And frankly, uh, knowing the context of Ephesus, uh, that helps me hold these things together in a faithful way where I feel like I don't have to pick and choose. Yes. Does that make sense? So like, it's being, trying to be biblical here. (laughs) Right, right. We're trying to be biblical in the way that the Bible seems to uh, present itself. Because, I mean, and we do this, we do this with passages where it seems obvious. Um, and I think that's important to note too, like even in the, in the letters to Timothy, um, there are instructions uh, to Timothy, you know, in like Second Timothy, like do your best to come to me quickly um, because, you know, somebody, uh, somebody deserted me. And then, you know, when you come, bring the cloak I left 
at Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, you know, especially the parchments. And we read that, right? And we're not like, that is obvious to us. Oh, that was contextual. I don't need to make a pilgrimage, you know, to, to the site and I need to bring a ritual cloak, Yeah, you know, like that's obvious to us. Right. But I, I think it's important to recognize, like we do this all the time with scripture. We recognize, oh, that that's not a universal principle that we should bring the cloak, you know, to the parchments. Right. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous example, but it also, I think it, it helps us and points out like, okay, there, there are times where perhaps other instructions were just as timely, just as contextual yep. as bring the cloak. Yep. So. Yeah. I want There's so much more to say about these texts, uh, <laughs> including, I'll just say this. <laughs> First Timothy 2, Paul makes reference to the crea- creation order. And there's, yeah. this, there's this interpretive move of if Paul links a teaching into the created order, then it's transcultural right. for all time. Yes, right? right, right. Uh, but see, this is where the hermeneutic breaks down. And you, there's explanations for this, but they are not persuasive and compelling to me, meaning they don't cohere. Because Paul, Paul has a creation order uh, allusion also in 1 Corinthians 11. Yep. And, the, and most Christians don't hold that women need to wear their hair up or wear head coverings because they... They un they are they're saying that's cultural, but Paul mm-hmm. links it to creation. Here Paul links something to creation, and it's not cultural, it's transcultural, and it's because he links it to creation. So there's this inconsistency that we have to with when we when we when we don't take the context and Paul's practice elsewhere in keep that in mind, keep that in vision, we have to do violence to the text, I believe. Mm-hmm. I'm just not, it doesn't align for me. So I know we could say so much more about this. We've already gone on a really long time. Uh, But hey, you might have questions, thoughts. Uh, Maybe you want to be an interlocutor, (laughs) interrogator, and you have, you know, you want some pushback. We love that. I'd like to get somebody on our podcast here soon who can present like a different way they're understanding male and female reconciliation in the church. That's really what we're talking about here. How do we actually live alongside each other? Um, I mean, we're going to worship, we're going to worship together and rule together for eternity. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? We got to figure this out. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We got to figure how this out. How to talk to each other. Yeah. How, how to, to look. Honor, honor one another. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but next, probably next podcast will be, we'll, we'll jump into the stories. I just kind of threw on the gauntlet there. And we'll uh, start hearing from people about how they're working this out on the ground. We'd love to hear your story too. Email us if you want. Hit us up. Uh, make a comment under the podcast. And we will see you, talk to you next week. Peace, y'all. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you found it helpful, please let us know by leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you review podcasts. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com to ask a question, suggest a topic for future episodes. And join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful throughout the week. To join us, Go to gravityleadership.com slash join. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.